<clears throat> if you would have told me my come out song this morning to preach was superstition, <laughs> man, that's top 10 favorite songs. So, true story on the Halloween theme, I guess. Uh, last night I was sleeping, of course, and my youngest is seven. I had my back turned to the door, I was sleeping on my side. And all of a sudden, I feel something on my hip, and it was, uh, it was my youngest just laying his head down on my hip like this, and I'm speaking on unforgiveness, and I almost knocked that sucker out in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, I had no idea. I just saw this ball of hair, and I never see a ball of hair, all right? So, just true story. So, let me, uh, let me read Psalm 51. I had nothing to do with the sermon, but... We did superstition, so Psalm 51. Uh, This is what it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, You delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we, um, I pray uh, right now, whatever it is that we bring in, and um, Father, it's good to have a little fun on the front end, and they, they killed that song, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so, Father, we, um, but I pray that whatever we bring into this place, especially when we talk about anything about forgiveness, seems to evoke just all kinds of emotion, all kinds of memories. And so, Father, I pray that we would see the one who really has cleansed us as white as snow, or at least offers that invitation to us. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I love particularly about the Psalms is just how painfully honest and human these authors are, especially a man like David. I mean, this is David's journal entry. And if you're not familiar with the story, he sees a woman on the other Uh, on on the other home next to his and he sees her on top and she's bathing and he wants that woman but that woman was married to another man and so the king gets what the king wants and so he gets this woman he conceives a child with this woman but he doesn't stop there he has the woman's husband sent to the front lines in the battle and tells them to back off when the battle really hits the climax so that he would ultimately be killed. And sure enough, her husband is killed and he kind of moves on until a man, Nathan, confronts him. And this is the reflection of that confrontation from a good friend, a prophet. And this is why he writes, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever 
before me. Now, we often hear forgive and forget, and this phrase finds its origin in the scriptures where God says there's sins I will remember no more. So the mindset is now go and do likewise. We may not be trying to forget something as extreme as the sins committed by David, but maybe it's an affair or a past relationship gone wrong. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe it was the heartache that you caused your mom and dad growing up. Maybe it was the pressure you put on your own child that led them to be wanderers. Maybe it's a past or even present addiction, or it could be simply going off on a kid. We will do just about anything to avoid pain, especially the memory of our own sin. You see, there is freedom in remembering. Dr. Kurt Thompson writes this, to forgive is not to deny those feelings, images, or thoughts, but have them tempered and changed by alternative sensations, feelings, images, and thoughts. This begins with paying attention to and then reflecting on how you interpret the focus of your attention. See, the question is, what are those alternative sensations, feelings, images, and thoughts when we choose to remember that part of our lives that we so desperately want to forget? What is the focus of our attention? Well, this is where the fourth century Bishop Augustine has something to say. I recently started reading Augustine's classic work entitled Confessions, and it's like reading a modern memoir of pursuing the so-called good life. Listen to what he writes. I intend to remind myself of my past foulness and carnal corruptions, not because I love them, but so that I may love you, my God. It is from love of your love that I make the act of recollection. The recalling of my wicked ways is bitter for my memory, but I do it so that you may be sweet to me, a sweetness touched by no deception, a sweetness serene and content. You gathered me together from the state of disintegration in which I had been fruitlessly divided. He's basically saying he's all over the place. I turn from unity in you to be lost in multiplicity. And then he says this, the single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and to be loved. And I think that reigns true for all of us. You see, Augustine lived a life of sexual pleasure, lived with a woman that was not his wife, 10 plus years, had a child with this woman that he really never claimed pursuing he pursued significant significant success in the world's eyes and therefore a higher status among peers but it just wasn't what he thought it would be you see to love and to be loved was the single desire that dominated his search and he refuses to forget those past memories so that he remembers how deeply loved he really is. So I want to discuss the following questions this morning. Number one, what is the truth about ourselves? What stories do we tell ourselves? And number two, what is good news for ourselves? 
What is the truth about ourselves? Well, the first two pages of the Bible says you and I were created in the image of God. It says the first humans were naked and without shame. And this was before sin ever entered the human race. The author knew there was something devastating about this word shame. You see, the difference between guilt and shame is guilt recognizes something you have done. But shame tells you this is who you are. After sin entered the scene through Adam and Eve, the Bible says that we fall short. It's like a bomb went off and we're all hit with the shrapnel. Now, I was reminded in preparation for this message of the 1992 film Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, winner of four Academy Awards. I mean, it is Clint Eastwood at his finest. And Clint Eastwood plays William Money, former killer, now farmer. And a reward has been posted for the pair of cowboys responsible for disfiguring a brothel worker. But Gene Hackman, as the sheriff in town, does not allow any vigilantes into his town. Money is this aging outlaw and killer, but it's his friend Ned, played by Morgan Freeman, that attempts to remind him he is not the man that he once was. And this is the civil war within Money's soul. Is he unforgiven? Because as you watch the movie... I believe it's the underlying theme because he operates from this place of unforgiveness. You see, I am convinced hurt people hurt people. Absolutely convinced of that. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If we don't ever face this reality, we will never see the ultimate reality in the one that says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the years following World War II, as Allied forces liberated Europe, they discovered a major problem. Seas of captured Nazi soldiers did not believe that the Holocaust happened, but they refused to believe it happened. To this day, Holocaust denialism is illegal in 20 countries as a result of the fact that so many continue to disbelieve that 6 million Jews were persecuted, murdered, and incinerated in ovens. And the Allies took drastic measures to curb this denialism. I want you to look at this picture. You see, in parts of Europe, the Allies would rent a movie theater gather the captured Nazi soldiers into the theater and show them footage from Auschwitz. That's what you see right there. That is an actual photo. And you can see some men looking at it, no change in their countenance whatsoever. Some are covering their faces and some look is almost intrigued by it. And so you see this and you're like, why would someone refuse to believe this atrocity because to believe the truth would mean to admit guilt. Fleming Rutledge says, unless we look sin in the face, we cannot possibly understand grace. Neuroscience confirms that our minds actually prefer resisting truth and reality. We refuse to believe the stories that we ourselves have helped write. This is why David writes in Psalm 51, verse 6, 
behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see, the truth is, Jack Nicholson was right. We can't handle the truth. We cannot bear the weight of our own true story. I will never forget when I was a kid, I had gotten some nasty 24-hour stomach virus. I am not one for bathroom humor, okay? I want you to hear that. But I just... I just cannot forget this story. My uncle was staying with us at the time, and he was in the downstairs shower. I had been sick all night, and I'm sitting in the living room, and I can nothing can go down, and everything works its way out, all right? And so my uncle comes, like, yelling from downstairs, runs up the stairs, and he says... I'm taking a shower, and all of a sudden, poop starts coming up from the drain. True story. And uh, we knew it was a problem. And so the plumber, plumber comes out to the house with a rotor rooter. I can't make this up, you all. Comes out to the house with a rotor rooter and finds the problem. It was a pair of tidy whities that had been flushed down the toilet that got stuck in the pipe, creating this problem in the home. And I'm going to be really honest, I sat there quietly. (laughs) I had never seen a pair of underwear be flushed down the toilet so quickly, and surely no one would ever find out. I was 12 years old. The last thing I was going to admit was I soiled my pants the night before. And so they flushed down easily, and as the guy literally was holding the underwear in the air in the front yard with his little rotor rooter, my mother comes to the rescue and says it had to be my younger brother. And I stayed quiet. And I was also incredibly grateful. You see, she knew I could not bear the weight of that kind of humiliation. What's the moral of the story? We soiled ourselves. We need to be rescued. The poop will always make its way out. And the rescuer cleans us up and washes us white as snow. And yes, that's the first time I've ever used a poop story to articulate the gospel. Okay? (laughs) While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus understands that. It's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one to help us bear the weight of our own story. And like Augustine, we remember that in the midst of our sin, he still loves us. This is why we remember. You see, Jesus honors our story, our whole story. He bears the weight of our story. He never leaves us alone. In fact, one of the Greek words for the English word forgiveness is to release. And when we we are able to forgive ourselves, we find that we ourselves are the ones being released. Jesus does not want us sitting in a jail cell. And that's what many of us live in was we cannot get past a sin that we have committed in the past. 
David will write elsewhere in another psalm. He says, I held on to my sins and my bones wasted away. We are not built to bear that kind of weight. You see, upon confession or repentance, God longs to release us. He wants to set the captives free. Now, I want to say something brief here, but it is very important. I will never forget the woman sitting in a recovery group we had helped start. When hearing the story of David and Bathsheba, she looked at me and she asked the question, what about Bathsheba? This was an inc- a very educated woman. She was now battling stage four cancer. And she looks at me and she says, this was against her own will. The woman was correct. The king got what the king wanted. Bathsheba was at the king's disposal. This woman's reaction was visceral. Bathsheba had no choice, she said. She was correct. You see, this woman had been abused most of her marriage. And maybe this is what David means when he writes, my sin is ever before me. Some of us feel like we can never forgive ourselves for something that was done to us, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Somehow shame has told us, this is your fault. And that has led you down a very self-destructing path. And may I tell you the truth? There is one that bears that weight too. Your body is a holy temple where God longs to reside. He bought you with a price. He wants to bring beauty out of the tragedy. He ultimately wants to set you free. He wants to stop the cycle of sin. What was done to you does not define you. You see, this is where confession and counseling intersect beautifully. This is when we allow the great counselor, the Holy Spirit, to work through gifted therapists and counselors, helping us name these sins that have been done to us so that we can be healed. The prophet Jeremiah writes, they've healed the wounds of my people lightly, claiming peace, peace, where there is no peace. The Prince of Peace longs to heal those wounds. That is a true story. This is the story we must tell ourselves with all of our hurt, pain, but also grace. You see the reality of it. Even in this room, there's some Davids, but there's also some Bathshebas. And I'm not putting gender on that because it hits both genders. And that's the reality. So number two, what is good news? Augustine is probably most known for formulating what has been called the doctrine of original sin. We are certainly infected and affected with sin from the day that we enter into this world. This is why David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It is a condition of the soul. We, in a lot of ways, are predisposed to, we have this propensity to rebel against the Creator. Which, by the way, this is one of the key reasons some faith traditions practice 
infant baptism. But we must not neglect the attention the New Testament writers give to original grace. We tend to focus more on Adam's sin and the grace that comes through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5.15. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. This is when the good news becomes better news. You see, may we not forget that shortly after Adam and Eve committed the first sin, that God comes looking for them in the garden, asking, where are you hiding? But then he sacrifices an animal, making the first sacrifice we see in the scriptures, just three pages into the Bible, and he closed them. And this is why the New Testament Anytime someone confesses their faith in Jesus, it speaks of them as being clothed in Christ. It's as if when we now enter a world swaddled swaddled in grace and yet affected by a sinful world, it's why you could drive down to Jewish Hospital downtown right now and you could go into any level, any floor, and when you see a child, an innocent child that is sick, it, is, it reminds us that we are in a world that has been deeply infected by sin. And that's the reality. But Augustine did indeed understand grace. Listen to what he writes when preaching this text. The example is not learning how to fall like David, he says, but instead may we learn how to rise with David. To you, Nathan the prophet has not been sent. David himself has been sent to you. Hear him crying, with him cry. Hear him groaning and with him groan. Hear him weeping and mingle with tears. Hear him amended and with him rejoice. If from you sin could not be excluded, be not hope of pardon excluded. That's that word release. May you not remain in a prison cell in your own heart and mind is what Augustine is saying because of what Christ has done. And then he says this, there was sent to that man Nathan the prophet, observe the king's humility. The king heard a prophet, let his humble people hear Christ. May we learn how to rise like David, not fall like David. What does this look like in practice within a community? Well, I had the opportunity to go to Greece about a year ago and do some teaching there with a missionary partner that gathered all their missionaries in from that region of the world for a three-day conference. And while there, I had the opportunity to visit Corinth with our team. Now, this is like bucket list for a pastor. You see, Corinth was the mega city in the Roman Empire. It held two harbors that made it the wealthiest city in the world. It's what held northern Greece and southern Greece. It had an international reputation for glamour. It would be akin to LA here in the US. It had a long history of hosting eccentrics from all over the world. And the Apostle Paul had spent about a year and a half introducing this gift of forgiveness to a community that feasted on freedom. 
with very limited restraint, especially as it pertained to sexuality. In that time, Paul planted a church. And in Paul's cultural moment, it was a world that was saturated with temples dedicated to the Greek gods and goddesses. This is one of the photos you see. This is some of the context for which Paul writes two letters we know to be 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul mentions the name Erastus. And I want you to really pay attention here. He mentions the name Erastus in his letters as the treasure that helped fund his ministry. Now the treasure was an elected position in the city demonstrating a person's personal wealth and he could administer the city's wealth as well. Paul becomes friends with the treasure in Corinth. The treasure of the richest city in the world was also the richest man in the world. He was the Elon Musk of his day. The name Erastus, though, is not a name. It's actually a nickname. Coming from the Greek word eros, which is where we get our word erotic, and it's literally translated one worthy of having sex with. No man with this nickname would ever be a treasure, but instead a sex slave or the son of a sex slave. There were some opposers of the scriptures and the authority of scripture and really the context of scripture. And they said this, they were from Germany and they said this early 20th century. They said there is no way no way a treasure would ever have the name Erastus. Therefore, Paul's testimony is false. Therefore, the man responsible for writing a majority of the New Testament is false. Therefore, you can't trust the scriptures. But roughly 20 years later, they uncovered a stone that's about three feet wide, and I saw that stone, and it had the name Erastus right on the stone debunking everything these German so-called theologians had said. He was a real human figure, a real historical figure. Now hold that thought. At the top of the Acropolis, which is the picture you see right here, is the highest point of the city, and it was designated to be the high sanctuary. And in Paul's world, this was the home of the goddess Aphrodite. You see this at the very top of the rock, and it goes across the entire width of that mountain. She was the goddess of love. There were thousands of boys and girls whose job was prostitution. They were dedicated to the temple of Aphrodite. The prostitutes would offer their bodies through sex. In fact, they were seen as the goddess incarnate, meaning in the flesh. If you were having sex with one of these slaves, you were having, you were having sex with the goddess herself. The slave prostitutes, the females, would shave their heads and they would have the words, follow me on the soles of their sandals. You see, a woman's hair is her honor and beauty. Everywhere you walked, you would see the words, follow me, in the Greek, in the dust of the ground. You were following these prostitutes with intent. There is a phrase, Corinthizing, live according to the Corinthian way, carnal pleasure with no limits. 
And you would see all these paths that come down from the top of the mountain, meaning people were going up and people were coming down. Now listen to this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Most High God. This is in the background. Your body is a temple of the Most High God and has been bought with a price. Your body is a temple and has been bought with a price. The only way for these prostitutes to leave a life of temple slavery was to be purchased. But do you know what the word used for purchase was? Redeemed. Who would be able to purchase such slaves? Well, one who had deep pockets. Possibly the richest man in the world, or at least the richest man in Corinth, whose life had been transformed by Jesus. And what would he do with them once he purchased them? Well, some of these men, and particularly women in this case, made their way into this new church. They no longer belonged to the temple goddess or an individual, but they belonged to the crucified and risen Savior. The one who laid down his life for them. But Paul doesn't stop there. He writes in 1 Corinthians to the wives and to the women in this community to cover their heads completely. Now you may have grown up in a tradition that used these verses and talked about these verses in a very legalistic way. To cover their heads. But they've missed the point. They've missed the context, and context is everything. You see, is Paul being a misogynist like any other men of his day? A former sex slave of Aphrodite's would take years to grow her, back, grow her hair back. Believe me, I know this. The head covering has a symbolic meaning. Be covered completely. It was a sign of love. To be literally covered in the love of Jesus. These women with long hair, I want you to picture this. These women with long hair would now cover their heads completely to identify with these marginalized former sex slaves as an act of love. And with a name like Erastus, who made his way to into this church, and we know that, it's possible he, as a, as a son of a former sex slave, would now use his resources to proclaim good news to these women. Paul was proclaiming these women had been adopted by a God. This was why the gospel was so scandalous. These women would come into a church, shaved heads, look around them, and ask themselves, how can I possibly forgive myself for what I have done? Or can I ever be forgiven for what was done to me? This is why the church is so important to the individual that struggles to forgive him or herself. We need to be covered or clothed in a good news community that practices just this. The first followers of Jesus were not called Christians. You know what they were called? Followers of the way. You remember the Corinthian way? And with each of their sandals, and you would look down in the dirt, and in the Greek you would see, follow me? What is the invitation that Jesus says over and over again? Follow me. And the first 
Followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. You see, this way is always better than the Corinthian way. And this is why Augustine will write this beautifully simple prayer. Lord Jesus, let me know myself that I may know thee and desire nothing but only thee. You see, the more we know ourselves, the more we understand who God is, the more we understand how deeply loved we really are. You see, that's the whole story, both the ugly parts and the beautiful parts. And that is the wisdom one learns when allowing the truth to sink deep into the core of who we are. And this is why David writes, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Thank God, David, the king of Israel, didn't kill his friend Nathan for what he had brought to him. But he repented and he confessed his sin and he began to rise. Thank God. You see, at the night of the Last Supper, Jesus says these words, this is my body that has been broken. Do this in what? Do this in remembrance of me. You see, there is our word remember again. This is why confession is beautiful. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But listen, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is our high priest, but he also blesses us with the church to confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another that you may be healed. The band is going to make their way up, but this is what we step into in this time of communion. That we take the bread and the cup and we do this to remember how deeply loved we really are. And so that's what I want us to do right now as we take part in communion. That we remember that we're not called to forget but we remember because of what christ has done for us and so let me pray for us and then we're going to step into a time of worship and a time of communion together father thank you thank you that your scripture really is alive and active and thank you that you really are just a really good heart surgeon that begins to make the incisive moves and with great dexterity of your faithfulness and you really do bring about just a heart transplant in all of us and that's the invitation that you offer us and it's why I love the scripture that says we were former slaves of sin but now set free and there's no better way to understand that than what it means to follow you Jesus and so father if this is new to us I pray that we would just sit in the place that we're in and just reflect on man is this God real
Can I too really be forgiven? Can I forgive myself? And to them, I hope that they would hear the words of just a really good father that just says, absolutely, your sins truly I will remember no more. I just need you to trust me. And so, Father, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.